Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. My panel has assembled. They're all in their respective places. They sit in the same spots every week. (laughs) We do, don't we? They sit in the exact same spots every week, which is helpful for me. (laughs) Because when I say Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V., I just kind of go around the horn. Yeah, I go time, in order. Next time we'll switch to seats. Don't you yeah. dare. No. Don't you dare. It's just like when you go to a, a resort or you go on a hunting trip or something, everybody always sits in the same seat yeah. every, every yeah. meal. Yeah. yeah. And Tom, at your at your church, people, same position every week? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah well, they have to amazed. pay for their seats at your church. At your church. Yeah. yeah there's there's a no I didn't know that. They yeah. told me. Yeah. Well, let's get the disclaimer out of the way. Go ahead, Wyatt. <laughs> All questions today will be answered in the best way possible based solely on the Word of God. There are roughly 8,000 people in this world. You clearly don't need another opinion. The panel today were blessed by a listener with pizza a few months ago, but if they think they're getting any kind of Christmas present from me, they are magnificently wrong. <laughs> That's our disclaimer. Well, that for is today. Bill. That's I love Bill. it. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I just want to get that out of the way. I That's want, good. I don't want you looking around and going, "Where's my present?" You know, expectations are important. Hey, if exactly. I don't get pizza, when you I'm don't not have one, I'm not. I'm not going to get a you present. Know, Greg, that ship has sailed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that never. Yeah, you needs gave to it be to the up. other guys. But I know. Never gave it I, to me. I know, but that's the way it works. Paying Life favorites. is not fair. Playing Life favorites. is not fair. Yep. All right. Uh, if you have a question, get them started. Send them over. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Here's a question to get started as we wait for other questions to come in. When does an acquaintance become a friend? Or how does that happen? People have a lot of acquaintances. That and, they call and, friends. Which I believe you're right. They yeah. refer to them as friends, but maybe uh, they're not necessarily friends. But, you know, friends yeah. is a friendly term. Well, it, it, you know, years ago when somebody was a friend, they were really a friend. And when they were acquaintance, they were really acquaintance. But now we live in the not only the tyranny of the urgent, but at such a rapid pace that our acquaintances now we claim are our friends. Right. <clears throat> and so when you ask somebody, well, would you go to that friend to tell them, about a sin in your life, or would you go to that friend to tell them about something you're grieving about, or would you go to that friend and be able to tell them something that may uh, be hard for them to hear? Well, no, no, I wouldn't be able to do that. Well, then they're not really a friend. Yeah, I count you guys as friends, and I just want you to know, if you were to call me at 2 in the morning, I promise you'd get right through to my voicemail. (laughs) <laughs> we're feeling better about that well yeah I'm just yeah saying. well you haven't given us your phone number so we can't call anyway <laughs> that's true so maybe you're not necessarily friends Jeff no, what's your thoughts on that I think that's probably one of the the keys your test right there can you call that person at 2 a.m. and will they get out of bed and will they be there for you and I think that's probably a pretty good definition of a, a distinguishing between a friend and an acquaintance that's probably probably inner circle of friends though there's layers, right? That's inner circle. There Someone are. that's going to be there at 2 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, you know, and 
don't forget the aspect of whether or not the person is a believer or not. You know, and if you're going to have a deep inner circle friend, I would argue if you're a Christian, th- those people better know the Lord as well, right? You know, Paul talks about what does light have in common with darkness or why be un- unequally yoked? And a lot of people think that's just for marriage. I think it's also for friendships and our personal relationships with others as well. Mm-hmm. Tom? I agree with everything that's been said. Um, it's a stage. It's like steps, going up steps or going down steps. Mm-hmm. Because most people are acquaintances. I mean, we all have acquaintances when we go to Home Depot or we go to, you know, Menards to get something. There are people find the cash register we've seen. But friends are somebody who usually have taken the next step. And either they've shared a little bit about themselves and their need or you have or you've got something in common. But then the inner circle you're talking about, I think, is exactly right. And that's that pool of people that you're really close to. And that's the pool the New Testament talks about in terms of the body of Christ, where we all have the union of Jesus. And so as a result, we're going to be there for one another. Does that happen in every church? No. Should it happen? Yes. That's the way it's designed. Yeah. There certainly is a lot of uh, people that don't have a lot of friends. And especially, I think, men, as they get a little older, they're having a harder and harder time connecting to friends that they can be transparent with. Well, the, the sad thing is, is that sometimes friendships are born over years of a relationship. I think of several friends I have in my life that if they were to pass, God brought them home. I don't have the time to go ahead and spend with somebody that I did with those guys to build that deep relationship. Mm. And, and so... It's sad. I mean, they you, they pass away. They they go off the scene, and and you just don't have the time, and and quite frankly, sometimes the energy, yeah, to invest in another friendship of that deep. Nothing quite like old old friends. I don't know if you have many friends that you've been friends with since, like you've been ten, or friends that you went to grade school with that you're still in contact with once in a while. Those are those are pretty sweet friends. I got I have several of them. So yeah, so do I. So do I. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. All right, uh, Tom Parrish, I'm looking your direction. I've heard this expression many times. You're supposed to uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. All right? Yep, heard uh, it. Is that, is that a good way to think? Um, what if somebody says, uh, it's not who I am. It's not what I do. It's who I am. So that's my behavior is who I am. So if you're going to hate the sin, you're going to end up really hating me. Yeah, I've heard that one a lot. I've been asked that question a lot. <laughs> And I think hate is is sometimes the wrong word. You know, hate puts us in a, a, a relationship of uh, distress between one another. I can love somebody who is way off the charts on Christianity. I can still love them and reach out to them. That doesn't mean I have to agree with them. And I tell people that up front, look, I'm, I care about you. I want to help you. But I'm not going to compromise what I believe about Jesus either. And I've been doing that over the years with classmates and others. And yes, I've lost some people that don't want to talk to me anymore. But I'll be honest, Bill, I've had more that now come back and say, you know, you're the first person that ever talked to me like that. I want to talk to you about a family situation I've got. And I'm blown away by it. Nice. You know, um, I have a hard time differentiating the two that you described. And the reason being is, is that I don't believe sin hangs out in the air as some virus that somebody catches or they walk through. It doesn't exist apart from um, having a, um, a living host in which to manifest itself. 
So it's not out there like in Little Abner, if you remember years ago, then the guy around with the cloud all the time. Um, and so sin has to have a host, whether it's an angelic host or it's a human host, in order which to reside and thrive. So to separate the two, I, I think, is an artificial distinction. So does that mean that if this person is a sinner, that I hate the sinner? Well, no. What I what I don't appreciate is the way in which that person manifests that sin and the harm that they create, but I'm still required by Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, unconditional love, to have a genuine concern for their well-being and welfare, even if they're unlikable or even if they're sinful. So I can act in their best interest but despise the acts that they're involved in. Sure. But you can't, in my view, you can't disassociate the sin from the sinner, but there has to be some way to understand that we're still to minister to them and care for them in a way that would honor God, but not condone the acts that That, come from that sin. That's interesting, because I've always liked that phrase, to love the sinner but hate the sin, because I I look at Scripture, and I, I see that God loves the world, even those that are still dead in their trespasses and sins, meaning the lost, that God still loves them. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God does love the sinner, and yet we know that God hates the sin, the, the manifestation of that in, the, in your behaviors and your actions and so on. That's sin, and God does hate sin. So I actually, I actually like that separation. I mean, you made a very interesting point. The, the other phrase that you used, though, Bill, and I, maybe you can help me out and say it again, the, the person who says that uh, I'm not, this is not what I do, this is who I am. Yeah, this is not my behavior. This is who I am. Right, this is who I am. That is not consistent with hate the sin, um, love the sinner, hate the sin, because that person, um, what they are doing is a behavior. In other words, any action that you do that God calls sin, and I want to agree with God on what he calls sin, and if you're doing that, that is sin. And so it's not you, it's your action and behavior. I I understand they're dead in their sins and they are sinful, and and so you're, you're making this distinction between the person and the behavior, but it's the behavior that those actions are sin. And that's not who who that person is, it's what they're doing. In other words, they're trying to justify their behavior, they're trying to justify their sin because they were born that way or that's who they are or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and but, I, but Jeff, they, they're convinced that's who they are. So I, 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 I love that you want to separate and say, no, that's your behavior, but they go, mm, no, that's who I am. Yeah. yeah, it can't be, by the way, biblically, I don't think, because, um, you know, that's, what are you going to say? That's how God, you were born that way, so you're born to sin. God wouldn't, if if it was an unchangeable characteristic of who you are, your skin color, your hair color, whatever it is, God would never call that sinful, mm-hmm. right? Because that's not something you can control, the only thing God defines as sin is that which you can choose to do or not to do, your behavior. But I, the fact is, is that behavior is a reflection of what's stored in your heart. That your behavior doesn't control what's in your heart. It may catalyze it. It may, um, it may provide some sort of stimulus for action. But what you store in your heart in terms of your central beliefs, your core values, your worldview, and your motives will manifest itself 
and overt behavior. If we just work on what I call sanctified behavior modification, we're dealing with the symptom and not the source. So we have to deal... Totally agree, by the way, for salvation. Yeah. I totally agree well, with that. Well, I mean, even even with, with the sin in somebody's life, it manifests itself in the core of their very being. So we we have to go and do it. When, when Christ dealt with sin, he didn't do it in the abstract. It was associated either with Pharisees or whoever he was confronting at the time with their sin. But I don't see... Maybe I'm wrong, Jeff, but I don't see anywhere in Scripture... <clears throat> The differentiation between love the sinner and hate the sin. I, I just don't see it unless I'm missing some scripture. No, and, and I totally agree with what you're talking about when it comes to salvation. I mean, I think that's what Romans 6 uh, is talking about when it says that when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, uh, Paul's words, you were a slave to sin, and that's all you could do. And in fact, he says, uh, though you once were slaves to sin, which is the kind of the who they are that you're talking about. An unsaved person is slave to sin. But then he says, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you have committed, and now you have become slaves to righteousness. So from a salvation standpoint, from a soteriology standpoint, I totally agree with you. It's interesting. I When I taught high school, I taught speech and debate, as well as English and other things. Here's what I learned a long time ago. Whoever sets the question for the argument wins the argument. In other words, when a person says, hey, that's just who I am, you got to accept it, they have already won the argument if that's what you argue about or that's what you go after. Instead, I look at them and I say, because I've heard this in my office, I've heard this from people, I look at them and I say, so you're very satisfied with who you are, you're at peace, and you know that when you face Jesus face to face, he's going to welcome you. Dead silence out of most people. Well, well, I, 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 I don't know. Most people put up those statements as a front to protect themselves so that you can't go after them or say anything they don't like. What I've learned is I don't even try to answer the question. I go beyond the question to the heart. Tell me about what's going on in your heart. Tell me about your, your guilt and shame. How do you feel about that? You feel like everything's okay? You know, are you satisfied with everything that's going on in your life? Now, usually in the beginning, you say, yes, 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 I am. And I'll go, well, then, then why are you here? <laughs> well, why are we talking about yeah. this? So, if so you're I totally problem. agree with that for that second phrase. So let me come back to the uh, love the sinner but hate the sin. What I like about it, Greg, is, is, is this, that I think we are still to love the tax collectors and the sinners, yeah. right? We love them with the love of Christ and we want them to be saved and so on. The hating the sin part is then saying, and I'm never going to compromise on what God calls sin, and so if I say it that way, that's how I summarize that phrase. Yeah, I mean, if somebody's put into prison, they're being put into prison for the crime that they committed. If somebody is sinning that's uh, creating havoc or harm to somebody else, I'm not going to go ahead and invite them into my home and have, sit down and have a meal with them because I have my family to protect as well. But that doesn't mean that I'm to marginalize them or ostracize them from the standpoint of having their best interests at heart. Maybe their best interest is until they deal with that problem or until they spend time, uh, in, in this particular case, incarcerated, um, they're not going to be able to come to any clarity. The other thing I would say is that we need to maybe confront somebody who says that, Bill, that that's who I am because... That really isn't who they are. That's who they've become. Right. Agreed. Right. That 
when they were brought into this world, they came into this world with a sinful nature, but also the image of God that's yeah. marred and, and, and needs to be restored. They come in with certain talents and abilities that they had no choice in choosing. That was the mark of God. They came into this world with um, some identity issues, a sense of the eternal. So when they tell me, well, that's who I am. No, that's who you've become and now we have to deal with who you really are and who God sees you as your creator. All right. We're going to take a little break and come back with lots of guy talk or guys who talk. Let me know what questions you have. They will do their very best to give concise, snappy answers. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we got work to do on this panel. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. No question is too big or too small, whatever you have on your uh, on your mind. Maybe it's something you heard at church last Sunday, or you learned about it in a Bible study, or you learned it in grade school and you still haven't resolved it. We're going to do our very, very best to uh, come up with an answer for you. Send the question over via text, 877-933-2484. You've probably heard me talk about hope quite a bit this season, and I think it's because we need to hear more about it. We need to encourage one another with hope. We need to build one another up with the hope that we have in Christ. And if you are feeling lonely, or maybe you are having periods of disappointment or despair, and you need hope, we want you to know that you can always come to God's Word for hope. Hope will always be there for you, waiting And if you are struggling to make it to the next moment, I want you to be able to text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. It is time for more guy talk, or guys who talk. I've got the professor, the pastor, and the Sunday school teacher. You know, maybe we need our own little statement at the beginning of the show. No, that's not going to happen. From our side. <laughs> no? Yeah. Our own disclaimer? Yeah. Oh, no, no? like that's okay. going to happen. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a sample, Jeff, of what you're thinking. I don't know what you're thinking. This is the people in this group. Will. <laughs> I've got the the, uh, the voice technology. If you want to lay a track down, I'll All let right. you, I'll let uh, you do it. That's the challenge. We need to do one, guys. All right. We're yeah. going to come up and with And I one. can speed it up and we can play it. There you go. And then we can I can make fun of it. <laughs> All right, Let, let's go to the feeding of the 5,000, which we clearly know it's more than 5,000, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, Jesus uh, is having the conversation with the apostles, and the apostles say, well, where are we going to go find bread to, you know, to buy to feed this crew, this crowd? And for, my first thought is, is there even, is Abdul's Bakery and Sandal Repair available to feed 30,000 people or 20,000 people? I mean, first of all, is it even a fair request? I mean, can you can you go? Could you have gone to Costco and gotten uh, fifteen thousand or twenty thousand bottles of water? Well, I'm sure there was some civilization nearby where there were shop owners or bakers or whatever where it would potentially have been possible. Okay, all right, I'm just throwing it out there. Not a Costco, remember? But no, yeah, no, that's so, true. Yeah. That's true. But I, the point I want to get to is the question the listener has is. Um, why would the disciples' hearts be hardened for not understanding the miracle of the loaves? Let's find that in 6.52. Mark 6.52. Mark. Why We need some music that's played. While I was just thinking that. We need like some, I don't know, some soft 
soothing music. We yeah, don't... I, mostly just to soothe my jagged nerves because <laughs> when they're not talking, and well, they're... one of them will eventually. Well, give it a eventually, whirl here. Ho- hopefully sooner uh, uh, rather than later. But you realize this is live radio. Why I do? Hey, and you know how they all have their thing, like Sunday school teacher and stuff. You know what my thing is, Bill? I think? <laughs> I'm afraid to ask. The truck driver turned producer. Well, I love that. I love that. I think that's my new thing. <laughs> He's qualified to drive a big rig. Did you guys know that? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big truck driver. I guess that makes me a big deal. I don't know. So, so we got the we got the professor, the pastor, the Sunday school teacher, and the truck driver turned producer. I like that. Nice ring to it. It's good. All right. It's interesting, this text, and what I like about it is this. First of all, you have to understand, the disciples had not arrived theologically. They were still in the process of learning. They still weren't even clear who Jesus really was. You know, it takes clear to the day of Pentecost for they even begin to catch on with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Up until then, they were simply operating out of their own, you know, worldview, their questions, and whatever. What I miss in Scripture is the fact that we don't get the other dialogue that probably went on, like one disciple saying to the other, is he out of his mind about getting food from somewhere else? What's wrong with him? We don't have food here. I think a lot of that banter went on. We get the, the, the highlights of it, but the reality is they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They didn't expect that he was going to multiply the loaves. They looked at it from a human point of view with a human problem and let's face it, 12 guys can't come up with food for 5,000 or 30,000 or whatever it is. I think we wouldn't be much different. I think we'd react the same way as the disciples until we're encountered with the, the, who Jesus really is. And even knowing who he really is, look at the churches today, how much we struggle with taking the risks and doing the things we need to do because we can't line it all up and it makes sense to us. I think it adds to the to the, the miracle. I mean— yeah. Could, it, could it even have been possible that that food could have been gathered within a reasonable amount of time? Because they said, sit them down in groups of 50. Yep. At that point, how long do you have to wait before they're going to start getting restless? Yep, you exactly. Know? Yeah. I don't know. What do you have, Greg? Well, when you talk about hardened, <clears throat> I agree with, with Tom. Um, Holy Spirit wasn't dwelling in them. They were still getting used to the fact of who Jesus was, that he's that he's God in the flesh. And so consequently, it goes back to the questions that Bill had raised in the past about tone. It would be interesting to see what their in, in their, their body posture is when they questioned him or when he, he made that comment about feed the, the, the people. They, they said, does the elevator go to this top floor? Did he realize that that's an impossibility? So I'm, I can imagine that that's part of the hardening because it, it was unbelief is what it was. Yeah, I've... While you guys were talking, I got a chance to look up the Greek uh, word for hardening, which is if you have a difficult passage and it doesn't completely make sense uh, or is not clear in the English, sometimes it helps to go back to the Greek. Uh, I don't know if this is one of these cases. I've never studied this uh, particular word or passage in that much detail. But one of the definitions of this word for hardening that's translated as hardened is to harden by covering or callous or metaphorically a dull heart or a, a loss, lose the power of understanding. Ooh. So there may be something here that basically says, because remember what happens. Did they understand how Jesus did that? They didn't even understand. They, they saw him walking on water just now in this passage, if you read where this passage comes from. He's walking on the water to them on the boat, which is where, where this verse comes from. They wouldn't understand that. So maybe this word, and I'm, I'm not 
saying this for sure, but maybe this word is that their hearts were not understanding. Like, I'm not understanding all this yeah, stuff like that's that. going on. It's interesting because I looked at the Greek as well and Strong's, uh, what he says about it. Mm-hmm. The first word he uses for hardened is the word petrified. Huh. Their hearts were petrified. Now, petrified is something that doesn't happen overnight. It's part of the character, and it's part of human character. All of our hearts are petrified until we come into contact with the Holy Spirit, until we come into contact with the living Lord. And so their response is very typical. That's exactly what anybody would have probably said or done, including us, until we really discover who Jesus is and really learn to depend on him. And today I look at Christians because I pastor all the time. Christians today still have a hard time really getting away from having petrified hearts in certain areas and really giving it over to the Lord. And that's where we need one another. And that's why I like being here with you guys, because we challenge each other's thinking. It's not just one approach. It's a matter of multiple, and that's good. And read the context. I actually like that because it says this. They climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They, Jesus is walking. Take courage. It is I. He said in the verse before this, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were petrified. petrified. I love that. Right? I, that actually makes more sense in context. All right. A week ago, Sunday, our pastor said he doesn't believe in the rapture. When I spoke with him later, he said he didn't think it could be borne out from Scripture. So I said I'd get back to him on that, but I've heard many, many teachers teach uh, that, and I do believe it, especially Jeff. Where can I point to? I would start at 1 Thessalonians 4, mm-hmm. 16 and 17, Amen. where it says, There's a voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ rise first, and after that... We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and there we will be with the Lord forever. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you going to do with that passage? Whatever you believe about the end times, you you have to reconcile or, or come up with a, an understanding or an interpretation of what that passage means. Personally, I think that describes a rapture. I believe it's a pre-tribulational rapture. The other passage, by the way, is John's, uh, John, Jesus says in the book of John, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am. Also, He's up in heaven. So there's there's a number of passages that you have to reconcile to whatever your view is on the end times. But uh, there's a couple good places to start. That's it. No, no, we can jump in here and go further. Well, go ahead. <laughs> a lot of Protestants don't call it the rapture for a very simple reason. There's nothing laid out in a sequence in one chapter that lays it out. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Let's be honest. When we go to, and I agree with Jeff, when you go to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians and read that, or you read about being caught up in the air, then people have to jump over to Revelation, and then they have to add that to it. Now, I'm not saying that isn't right. What I'm saying is it's not an argument worth talking about in most cases because Jesus says the day will come when suddenly I will reappear and it's over. And I will take care of it. Now, whether there's going to be a rapture as we understand it in seven years, as it talks about elsewhere in Scripture, how that all works out, I don't know. What I do know is if you aren't ready right now, you're in trouble. Hmm. And this is the time to be ready. And so there's a there's a divergence. And so in my congregation, I have people that are very strong on the rapture and others that aren't very strong on the rapture. When I preach on the topic, I say, this is what the text says. I'm not going to argue with the text. It's there. But I'm not going to create a theology for you trying to combine all the other texts. I'm simply saying, be ready, because Jesus is coming back. 
And and how are we ready? We're ready through faith in Christ, yeah. right? Because if you believe, you have an inheritance. Yeah. All right. How about, can you explain replacement theology and what denomination believes in this? We talked about this yesterday. Did we talked no, about no. last week, too. No, we didn't. No, not quite. <laughs> this came up in conversation, but it, it's not... We came up last time. It, I, think it, came up I think it did, didn't it? So yeah. can we just define it? I'll define it, and then you guys can jump in. But replacement theology generally is, is the understanding that the church has replaced Israel, that God is done with Israel, um, he has no future plans for Israel, and that basically all the promises, although they don't often say the curses, but all the promises that were Israel are now the churches, and while... We have been grafted in the wild branches, the Gentiles, into the kingdom, um, and we have language like that, that Father Abraham is our father, that he is the father of faith, and that we've been grafted in, and that we are all now one in Christ, and all that kind of language. Uh, those who believe in replacement theology don't believe there is a future for Israel, where those who don't believe in replacement theology believe that there is a future uh, salvation for the nation of Israel because his gift and his calls are irrevocable and God promised this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he's going to see it through. So there's the kind of the core difference between the two sure. views. There's sure. um, churches that hold strongly to a dispensational view of how things are going to, to roll out often also embrace this replacement theory which says that the church replaces Israel. But it's obvious in, in the text, in, in Revelation, that Israel doesn't go away, that they're still uh, special to God. And so, um, anyway, replacement, the, the denominations that, that teach it are often those that are, abide by a strong dispensational view. Yeah, and here's where the struggle comes in. I, I wish in Christianity we wouldn't use negative terms toward one another. Replacement theology sounds like anybody that holds to that really isn't a Christian or really doesn't believe. And we don't need to go there. What we need to do is say this. Israel is not going to be saved apart from Jesus. But there are many Christians today who believe there are two different forms of salvation, one for Israel and one for the Christian. Yeah, we talked about this last week, too. We did. And I say absolutely not. The New Testament does not affirm that, does not teach that. So here's the problem. If you are strong in believing that you've got a separate uh, plan for Israel, then what does Jesus have to do with it? Nobody ever talks about that. They just say it's a separate plan through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. and not arguing that. But if it doesn't come to Jesus and the Jew doesn't surrender to Jesus just like the Gentile needs to, there is no plan for them beyond Jesus Christ. And that's the scriptures, and that's the part I wish we could talk about more and understand because I don't care which side you're on. What I want to do is make sure that we don't go to Israel and feel that we can't witness to the Jews because they already got their plan of salvation, right. and we don't need to talk to them about that, Jesus. That two-plan approach is called dual covenant theology, yeah. and it basically says that the church does not need to evangelize the Jew. I think Paul makes this clear in Romans that we're all under sin, Jew and Gentile. Christ came to die for sins, Jew and Gentile, and both Jew and Gentile need to believe in order to be saved. That doesn't mean, however, that there isn't a future for the nation of Israel. This is all Romans 11 stuff where, in 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 a nutshell, it says there's one day coming, and I believe it's the day that Jesus comes back, because mm -hmm. there's salvation found in nobody else except Jesus that all Israel will be saved, meaning a remnant of the nation of Israel will be saved because, as Romans 11 says, God's gift and his promise and his call that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
are irrevocable. I remember one older pastor who made a good point. He used good illustrations. I love illustrations. He said, think of Israel. Think of Jerusalem. Think of all the gates that go around there. Okay, there's a gate that, that the Gentiles will come through, and they will come in, and their setting on the throne will be Jesus, and they will bow down to him. The Jews will come through another gate and come to the same throne and the same Jesus and bow down to him. It's not that they have two different ways of salvation. It's just they have two paths they're taking to the same thing. And that same thing is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the Savior. I like that. All right, we'll take a little break and come back with lots more guy talk. Let me know what questions you have. So far, I don't think they have uh, not answered a question. So let's see if we can even <laughs> stump them today. Um, maybe the question that will stump them is, when do you guys think you're getting pizza again? The answer is never. <laughs> How about so you could, you could do some easy questions? I could. Too, I could, yeah. yeah 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. It is time for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. So if you have a question, let me know what you have for them. Here's one that just popped up, gentlemen. If you had 10 or 15 seconds in passing with a stranger, what would you tell them about Jesus? He is the one and only Savior, and if you give your heart to him, you have eternal life, and you need to do it right now. Well, you got an extra few seconds to spare if you want to <laughs> pad that, Tom. <laughs> I could, but that's basically would be the message because... Uh, I try it like for my congregation. I'm teaching them how to pray with people that want to receive Jesus or how to talk to people about Jesus. And I keep this as simple as I can. Yeah. Uh, I use an ABCD approach, you know, uh, with, with scriptures and with to get people to understand. It doesn't need to be that complex, but it needs to be straightforward and, and unambiguous. Yeah. You need Jesus is the answer. He's the one that covers your sin. Give your heart to him. And you have eternal life. All right, all right. There's kind of three truths that if I'm in a casual conversation, I might let one of these out in some way, shape, or form. And that if we're talking about the world or creation, it's like, well, yeah, isn't it incredible what God has made? And I and I represent God as the creator of all things and potentially as the creator of the person. Um, another one, I will sometimes, well, God loves that person too. Uh, it's kind of on the truth that God loves all. It's a little bit what our, we were talking about earlier, that yeah. God loves the world. He loves every single person. And I don't think everybody understands that God truly loves them. And then uh, sometimes uh, I've used something more like such as, uh, well, you know, Christ died for his sins as well. And that's getting at the truth of Christ died for all, uh, all sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 15 seconds, you can't get too theological. Mm-hmm. Are you going to drop or or another one that I'll use sometimes is like well I know Jesus is going to come back to rule this place one day you know and I'll say something like that in a casual conversation mm-hmm. so little nuggets that you can drop in 15 seconds I think I would say that you know you were on the heart of God before you ever came to be Ooh. and that God says he will chase you until you seriously consider the claims of his son Yikes. And you still got a few more seconds to spare. (laughs) Do you remember the story about the Titanic? 
The Titanic goes down. What? what uh, you just spoil it for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't know that? Well, I'm reading the book. <laughs> anyway, the Titanic goes down. There's a pastor on board, evangelical. He's in the water. It's freezing cold. And for the last 20 minutes of his life, he swam from boat to boat, not uh, trying to get in, but sharing the gospel. And he was very blunt and straightforward. And after he died, there were people that were saved as a result, that on that cried out to Jesus. Wow. And then there are testimonies of people from the Titanic who said his witness, when we knew he was going to die, and what he said to us so convicted us, we became Christians. Wow. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Here's a biological question. We're going to bring up Mary again. Um, Was an embryo placed in her womb? It seems uh, to be fully God and fully man. Uh, It couldn't have been an embryo, but then how could Jesus have been uh, sinless if born from a sinful woman? I personally love this question. I know you do. I know. It's it's one that, uh, it's the question is whether or not God used Mary's egg or not. And if he used Mary's DNA in some way or egg, uh, wouldn't that mean that the sin of Adam, which we inherit from Adam all the way down, wouldn't have that have been passed along? And so when it says the Spirit came upon Mary, or what has been conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, I think the church has a traditional view that somehow there was some kind of fertilization of an egg inside Mary, rather than what this the question asks is, didn't God, did God need an egg to make Adam? And the answer is no, he made Adam from the dust of the ground. And did he make Jesus's body in a similar way? By the way, Jesus is called the second man or the second Adam. And uh, those are the two beings, Adam and Jesus in his incarnation, that weren't the product of reproduction, but were the result of a direct creative act of God. So I've actually concluded that God didn't use any of Mary's DNA, but as people have strong feelings about this uh, issue. I don't, I, we haven't talked about this before, so I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Go on, Greg. I want to hear too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting, Greg. Well, the fact is, is that she went through nine months of pregnancy yeah. and that Jesus in the womb was inextricably linked physically to, to Mary. So I think the question about whether or not um, God fertilized the egg is mute because he was a part of Mary and all of the physical um, apparatus and systems mm-hmm. associated with that. So I think that though God, being God the creator, could make sure that the sinful nature wasn't embedded in Christ and regardless of what the physical process was to bring him to life. Yeah, and we know that, and that's a very important truth, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? He was born not from the line of Adam, but from God. He came from heaven and was incarnate without sin. So that is the important doctrinal point of Jesus' incarnation, is that he did not inherit the sin of Adam. Yeah. In Luke one thirty five, it says, The angel came upon her, or answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born you will be called Holy, the Son of God. It, it, we don't get any information there about eggs being fertilized or anything else. It simply says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. What well, can the Holy Spirit bring an egg that's already fertilized? Well, of course the Holy Spirit can. We don't have an answer, and it's the kind of question, I, I love it, I respect it, I struggle with it. But we're never going to get a solid answer from the Bible. 
It just isn't there. All right. I think we're all time for a little break. We're going to come back with lots more guy talk. Let me know what you have. Bring your questions. Maybe you've already heard a question and you didn't like the answer and you want more clarification. <laughs> That's always an option, isn't it? Why not? Yeah. We're open to that. Yeah. Um, 877-933-2484. We're always happy to clarify anything that you've heard or go uh, into deeper detail uh, because I think we can. So 877-933-2484 and we'll be right back. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next, check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to Guide Talk, or guys who talk. I've got Greg B. and Tom P. and Jeff V., why are you waving, Jeff? I'm just waving. I'm, I'm Jeff V, so I was waving when you called my name. <laughs> Jeff is waving in the studio. It's radio, You guys, right you guys want to wave? Yeah. Yeah, they both waved. <laughs> uh, that was futile. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Any other details about Mary and her um, her birth? Well, no, I was just we, off during break. We were talking about the passage in Matthew chapter 1 where it says, what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and that I had done a study on that word, and it can be uh, being made, not necessarily being fertilized. And and it, I just asked the question, uh, often you will hear a pastor say, you know, the half-brother of Jesus being, you know, James, and meaning that they share DNA with Mary. And, and, and the Bible is not a biology textbook, so we don't have the biological answer to this, but I just, I think this is just a fascinating question to look at. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question. When Jesus turned water into wine, wouldn't he have become an enabler to drunkenness? Well, if people overdrink, that's their problem. The substance itself is not the issue. It's what you do with that substance that makes all the difference because think of it this way. I know there are a lot of churches that only use grape juice. Uh, I've had pastors tell me it couldn't have been wine, didn't have time to ferment. I'm not going to go there. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, when we offer Holy Communion in the worship service, or Jesus offered at the wedding, um, he knew what he was doing. And it was real wine, I believe, because the steward said it was the best that he had ever tasted. The problem is, I think it's with anything in our culture. I mean, I hear people today say, oh, you know, these these things out there, you know, uh, mushrooms, the marijuana, they're so bad. I think they were created good. We haven't learned how to use them properly, the way the Lord designed. And I think alcohol is somewhat the same. But the devil would take anything that we're into, whether it's alcohol, the media, sex, and exploit it to make it bad. It's not the Lord's fault. It's what we do with it that makes all the difference. I've heard people say, well, if God didn't want us to smoke marijuana, he wouldn't have made it. But I think your, <laughs> I think your line is exactly right. There are other 
true medicinal purposes to some of these things that we could probably end up figuring out, and that's probably why God made them. And I do agree with you also that it was real wine at the wedding, so that was a good answer. Hmm. All right, let's see. Uh, When you hear people say, I need to get, uh, you need to get right with God, what do you think they mean by that? Do you mean that they first have to understand what's wrong with them in order to get right with them? Well, that may be what they mean, but what Scripture calls us to do is to be reconciled to God. So the point is, is if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you don't have a relationship with God other than the fact that he is your creator, but not a a fellowship relationship, a familial relationship. So to go ahead and establish that relationship, you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and at that very moment, God brings you into the family, adopts you as a member of the family. Now, if there's a broken relationship down the road after you've come to Christ through sin, then you no longer have to establish a relationship with God. You have to restore the relationship with God. But it's all about the relationship and the fellowship that you have with him that gets broken, not as unconditional love. When I was dating my wife, on the first date, I'm serious, I knew I wanted to marry this woman. I can't tell you why. It was of the Holy Spirit. Guess what I didn't do on the first date? I didn't ask her to marry me. Because Quite we, restraint, Tom. I she might have ran right then I, and there. Right? She would have run. It took me building a relationship with her. I think that when people make the statement, you need to get right with God, I don't think the statement itself is bad, but it's kind of the end of the conversation after a longer conversation that goes into how are you dealing with your shame and guilt? How are you dealing with your broken relationships? How are you dealing with your fears of dying? And then you can go to the reconciliation But oftentimes, if we start there, it's more of a cliche, and it really doesn't produce a conversation. I've witnessed, and and, uh, as a crazy Lutheran I am, I've been very privileged to lead lots of people to the Lord Jesus Christ and disciple them. It always takes a conversation. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's over months or weeks or years. But the bottom line is they need to have to finally come to a point where they know they have a need and they're asking for an answer. Then you can talk about you know, that answer is getting right with the Lord, and Jesus has shown us how to do that. I mean, one of the questions you have to ask is, what's the motivation of the question? You can say, you need to get right with God as as, a, in, as if you're condemning them. Yes. Or you can say, you need to get right with God because you need to be in his family. So it depends on how it comes across. And, you know, Scripture says that God judges the motives of, of people's hearts. So what is the motive behind the statement that will clarify what's meant by it? That's a good word. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that most people that use that phrase are talking about salvation, that you need to get right with God. You know, and Scripture describes that in multiple ways. You said uh, to be reconciled with God, to have peace with God, uh, to be justified, to be brought into mm-hmm. his family. Uh, that's what they're re- really referring to. Uh, but there is this component that once you are saved and you have been made right with God— yes. You can wander, the things of this world could become more important mm-hmm. to you. You can drift away from God, all those kind of things. And a fellow believer might come up to you and say, hey, you seem to be walking away from God. I think you need to get back right with God again. And they're they're saying it not from a salvation perspective, but a, more the fellowship. I think you yeah. used the word fellowship perspective. Yeah, restoration, yeah. yeah. Restoration. Well, that goes back to what you said originally about that inner core of friends. Inner core of friends can do that. You know, acquaintances can't. Yeah, good callback, Tom Perry. That was. That was really good. Yeah, that was that. That was in the first five minutes. I'm paying attention here today. (laughs) No kidding. I'm impressed. 
All right, we've got a couple minutes left before this hour wraps up. We have a full hour ahead of us, so anytime you've got a question, you want to send it over via text, 877-933-2484. Here's a question, guys. Where will Christians live in the millennium? We were in heaven, then back onto earth to rule, question mark? No longer in heaven then? Peoria. <laughs> for the for the for the whole millennium? Yeah, no, I don't. Wow. One of the things that the question observes correctly is that we were in heaven, we're now glorified and we've come back. It's scripture says to rule and reign with Christ. That's right. Christ rules from Jerusalem. Um I'm assuming that the people that rule with him will actually be spread throughout the whole earth. Because there, the earth is going to be filled with people in bodily, in human bodies, in, in earthly bodies. And I think that we will be the administrators and the governors and the, you know, the, the county clerks and the whatever around the world. So yeah, I, I've already asked the Lord to give me Ireland. You want, yeah, I've, yeah you've gonna, said that before. Get it too. You want Ireland. You might get yeah. wow. it. <laughs> you're gonna, like it. You're going to get Ireland. <laughs> so when you think about the thousand-year millennial reign and that verse in Peter that says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, does that have anything to do with the thousand-year millennial reign? Um, I do in this sense that the day of the Lord is a day that's refer- that phrase is referred to all over Scripture, Old and New Testament, actually. And that day of the Lord, I think, I've concluded— in, starts at the rapture of the church, includes the tribulation period, but also includes the thousand-year reign. So the day of the Lord or the age of the Lord is literally a thousand years on earth, his kingdom. I think that is the millennial kingdom, including the tribulation through the millennial reign to the uh, great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand-year reign. So when he says a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, it is. It's the day of the Lord, and it's a thousand-year day or age. Maybe you can answer this question for me. When that day is referenced in Scripture, it's mm-hmm. always capitalized. So is it signifying Christ's second coming, or like you said, uh, Jeff, that it's more of the span of time from tribulation all the way to that point. So I see descriptions related to the day of the Lord, this phrase, to include both the tribulation, the second coming, although most of the days on the second coming, coming they add some adjectives, the, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Yeah. And But that phrase also includes the kingdom stuff for a thousand years. So it includes all of it. I think we'll pick up day of the Lord in the top of hour two. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Send your questions over. We have another full hour ahead. Hour two is around the corner, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.